A few years ago, I had just exited the freeway in Southern California on my normal drive back from work. And I was sitting at this red light at the end of an off-ramp behind a handful of other cars, probably listening to an audiobook or something, with my brain mostly on autopilot after a long workday. And before I realized what was happening, I suddenly heard this loud rev of an engine and this large SUV flew just inches past me, driving on the shoulder curb to my right, smashing into a tall light pole and plowing ahead, veering back onto the road and then hitting all of the cars in front of me. As shards of glass and metal flew everywhere, the light pole that had been hit tipped and shattered on the ground right in front of my truck. For a split second, I just kind of sat there frozen and wide-eyed, trying to process what had just happened. An SUV had careened off the freeway down the off-ramp, but for whatever reason, never applied the brakes. At 70-plus miles per hour, they managed to swerve around my truck, but then hit a light pole a few feet away from me and then smashed into everyone else in front of me who had been waiting at that light. I did what I could to help. I called 911. I checked on the original driver and other people in cars involved. And thankfully, no one appeared to be injured beyond future recovery. But everyone was shaken and a few vehicles would never drive again. And once everything had settled and the police dismissed me to drive away, I had time to digest just how close I had come to having my life potentially changed forever. If something had gone slightly different... If that SUV hadn't swerved onto the curb and elected to use a light pole to slow them down instead of my truck, it would have been me they smashed into at 70 miles per hour. But it didn't happen that way. We all have moments like that. Times where we realize, oh man, if something had been slightly different, life could have been changed forever. And it's experiences like that that can really jolt our lives into perspective. Suddenly the stain on our new shirt or the stressful upcoming deadline at work doesn't matter so much anymore. And and hopefully we walk away with a little more appreciation for what we have, the good and the bad. But what about those times where something happens and it does change the course of our lives? What about the people who go through something so life-altering that we often look at them and wonder how they managed to get through it? How they managed to create a new normal? if they were able to at all. Today's story is about one such incident, a single moment that happened to a single person that ended up influencing not dozens, not hundreds, but thousands of lives. Thanks for being here. I'm Jolie Hales, and this is Podsitivity. It was the early 1960s in northern Utah. 19-year-old Joanne was a student at Brigham Young University, and with Thanksgiving only a few days away, she had taken a break from studying to enjoy a night at the skating rink with her college church group. Joanne loved roller skating, and when her roommates decided to leave the rink early for the night, Joanne would need to secure a different ride home if she was going to be able to stick around. As the self-sufficient strong woman that she was, she looked through the crowd of young adults and found one she recognized, Jack Rushton, a member of her church congregation. Joanne had originally thought that Jack was a college professor, not a student. I heard him speak in church one night, 
and he was so profound that I thought he must be a professor or something because I couldn't believe that, you know, a student could give such a good talk. His remarkably well-delivered sermon combined with the fact that he was in his mid-20s, a solid five or six years ahead of Joanne, just made him seem like he was in a different part of life. But over the weeks, Joanne had gotten comfortable enough with Jack over a few casual conversations on the phone when she was originally trying to get in touch with his roommate for some weekly church responsibility that she had. Jack would always answer the phone and Ken would never be there. But we joked a lot on the telephone. And so he came to know who I was. So by the time she was hoping to find a ride home from the skating rink, she trusted Jack and his friends enough for the job. Once the night of 1960s skating fun had concluded, Joanne was taking off her skates, talking casually to Jack and other friends. With Thanksgiving only a couple days away, Jack asked Joanne what her Thanksgiving plans were. Being a California girl, Joanne didn't have family very close by, so she figured that she'd take a bus a couple hours north to visit her aunt's house, to which Jack responded, Well, me and my two friends, who are pilots, were flying in a four-passenger plane to my home in Ely, Nevada. And he says, you know, we actually have room for one more. Why don't you come? And I said, jokingly, of course, well, of course I'll come. That sounds like a blast. He says, no, I'm very serious. Joanne laughed at the offer to hop a small plane to Nevada. But Jack, smiling, wouldn't drop it. He took me home and kept joking about it the whole way. And he walked me to the door and he said, I'm going to go call my friends Larry and Ken and ask them if it's okay if you come. I said, you, you do that. Jack was hilarious and very kind. And his interest in having her come on this trip was entertaining. But she didn't think she'd actually be taking him up on this offer. But shortly after dropping her off, Jack called her to let her know that the other two guys scheduled for the flight had given a big thumbs up to the idea of her joining them. And he really wanted her to come. And I thought, well, this is interesting. But I said, okay, I'm going to pack my bags and I'll be waiting for you. And if you don't come, I will really be humiliated. Sure enough, the next day, all three of the guys showed up on her front porch and soon Joanne found herself flying through the air in a small plane headed for Ely, Nevada. It turned out that Jack's family was having a huge family reunion for Thanksgiving. And after nearly giving his mother a heart attack when he showed up with a girl, they found a place for her to sleep amongst the dozens of kids and family members running around. Joanne had to laugh at the situation. She had never even really hung out with Jack, and suddenly she's sleeping next to his entire extended family. But Joanne was down for adventure, and Jack made her laugh. Those next several days, Jack and I just grew closer and closer. They toured the copper mines, went rabbit hunting, and they just did a lot of fun things, getting to know each other along the way. And that Saturday night, just four days after heading to Nevada as nothing more than platonic acquaintances, they went to a local dance. And when we danced together, we just knew that we were for each other. The next day, when the two of them drove back to their Utah campus, Jack held Joanne's hand. I never dated anybody else or anything. Five months later, they were engaged, and a couple months after that, on July 22nd, 1964, they tied the knot in the Los Angeles Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
And I should probably pause here for a second for anyone who isn't familiar. Jack and Joanne are both members of that faith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Whenever someone, somewhere, serves someone else, there is truly cause to celebrate. A message from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. With its members formerly commonly known as Mormons, though members today prefer to use the full name of the church instead of the old nickname Mormon, because the nickname basically tends to confuse people into thinking they worship a person named Mormon rather than Jesus Christ. But as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints myself, I fully acknowledge it's a bit of a mouthful, and I can tell you that we used to use the term Mormon all the time. So, like, don't feel like you've offended anyone you've called a Mormon in the past, just in case there was any clarification needed. And I mentioned Jack and Joanne's faith because it comes into play in this story in a couple of ways. First, Jack's dream had always been to teach religion classes for his faith. He was a true believer, and he found a lot of joy helping young people in their faith journeys. Specifically, members of the LDS Church have religious classes called seminary for high school students, and then they also have classes called institute for college students. And when Jack graduated from college, he fulfilled his goal by becoming a seminary teacher, teaching LDS doctrine to teenagers for the first few years. And then later, he and Joanne moved to Southern California, where Jack could teach institute classes at Cal State Los Angeles while simultaneously earning his doctorate at USC. And with the family living in Orange County, the commute, his studies, and his work made Jack a very busy man. We did get his doctorate from USC. But all that time, he taught institute and was very busy. Additionally, beginning about a year after getting married... Jack and Joanne had six children over a 21-year span, and Joanne preferred to stay at home and raise the children while Jack taught institute classes. And while it was enough money to pay for a modest home and feed the family, institute teachers pretty much choose their jobs because they love what they do, not because they want to become millionaires. So Joanne would take in daycare children or pick up part-time work at the school district when the children's schedules allowed it, just to bring in some extra income. And life was good. They were busy, but they were happy. Jack was doing what he loved, being a father to six beautiful children while juggling a teaching job he was passionate about. And Joanne was doing what she loved, being a mother in a beautiful family and wife to a man she loved, serving as the PTO president and living in this two-story home in Tustin, California. Years went by and the two oldest children got married and moved away, having families of their own. Another child was serving a two-year mission for their church in Columbia, leaving only the three youngest children still living at home. John was just turning 16, Rachel was nine, and Jackie, the youngest, was four. It was Tuesday, August 1st, 1989. Prime time for poofy hair and rock ballads, and the summer season before classes started up again was nearing an end. Jack, now 50, and Joanne, now in her mid-40s, had been given the opportunity to use a good friend's beach house in Laguna Beach, a welcome getaway for the busy family. During these recent years, Jack had added another busy responsibility to his plate. He was asked to serve in the volunteer clergy position called Stake President, which is a leader of multiple LDS congregations, where he was responsible for like leading local bishops, speaking to large congregations, giving counsel to members, doing a lot of praying for people, and basically just serving in any way he could without thought for payment in return. 
And because of this position, Jack donated much of his time humbly helping others, and he was looked to for guidance by really thousands of members of the LDS community. Life for Jack, as you might guess, was a little insanely busy, but the opportunities to serve were rewarding to him. So when the opportunity for easy access to the sands of Laguna Beach presented itself that August day, Jack and Joanne jumped on board. A little family time away from the busyness of life was most welcome. So Jack, Joanne, and the three kids who were still living at home found a spot to settle on the sands of the main beach in Laguna for the day. A place near the charming sidewalk shops, the historic movie theater, if you're familiar with the area, the volleyball courts, that whole area. 16-year-old John and his friend Matt ran off toward the ocean to do some body surfing, while Joanne made sure that Jack was adequately plastered in a layer of sunscreen. I had a very unusual experience as I was rubbing sunscreen on his back. We had just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary about just a week before and just had a nice experience. And as I was rubbing sunscreen on his back, I don't know, I just, this overwhelming love I felt for him and how good our life had been together and how happy we were. It was just a feeling that just totally came over me and filled my mind. Joanne was so grateful for the wonderful 25 years they had spent together. And although the feeling of love overwhelmed her in that moment, She didn't feel the need to say anything about it to Jack. There would be time for that. And if nothing else, he already knew. Once the sunscreen was applied, Jack took off his glasses and asked his wife to point his blurry vision in the direction of John and Matt so he could join in their body surfing adventures. Joanne happily pointed him in the right direction and then went back to relaxing in the sun, reading a book. Their nine-year-old daughter played in the sand next to them while their four-year-old daughter had fallen asleep on the beach. It seemed to be a near-perfect, relaxing day. So there, Joanne sat, enjoying her book, Under the Sun. But she had only read a few pages when she was suddenly interrupted. It was her son's friend, Matt. He was running toward her, shouting her name and saying, You've got to come quick. Your husband's been hurt. And I didn't have a clue what that meant. Joanne sprang from her seat on the beach, asked Matt to stay with the girls, and rushed toward the water where the group had been body surfing. And as I got closer, I could see all these people in a circle. And lifeguards were there. And then John saw me and came to me. And he says, Mom, Mom, Dad's been hurt. I'm not sure what's wrong. I think maybe it's his neck. I'm not sure. Joanne pushed her way through the crowd of people to see her husband lifelessly laying on his back as a group of lifeguards took turns giving him CPR. His skin was white and his lips were blue. It was a sight no wife ever wanted to see. All I kept hearing, we can't get him to breathe, we can't get him to breathe. Joanne couldn't believe what she was looking at. She tried to rush to Jack's side, but the lifeguards held her back, keeping her a few feet away so that they could try to save his life. Weakened with devastation and anxiety, Joanne lost strength in her legs and tearfully fell to her knees. I just uttered a prayer. Heavenly Father, let him live. I don't care how, just let him live. And of course, I had no idea the implications of those words. 
Her 16-year-old son, John, stood terrified at her side, watching the CPR rotation. At one point, one lifeguard asked Joanne if Jack had ever had issues with his heart. But no, he had always been healthy. This just didn't make any sense. I couldn't believe anything. I thought he had had a heart attack. I, I didn't know what was the matter, but he was unconscious. John had mentioned to me that something was wrong with his neck, maybe, but that didn't sink in until later. Eventually, the truth revealed itself. It turned out Jack had waded out into the water to join John and Matt for some body surfing. When he saw his dad enter the ocean, John swam to him and the two of them chatted pleasantly as they waited for the next good wave. And eventually, it came. Jack and John pushed off at just the right moment and the wave carried them blissfully forward. As the wave drew nearer to the shallow sands, John pulled off the wave and then called to his dad to see how his ride had been. But he didn't get an answer. For a moment, John thought that his dad was probably hiding, about to sneak up on him, ready to grab his legs in an act of playful surprise. But that didn't happen. Confused, John quickly scanned the ocean horizon around him, and then he saw a flash of color in the water. Jack was on his stomach, motionless, being carried by the ocean current. Immediately, John fought his way through the water, yelling for his dad, but he received no response. He reached his father, and with all the strength he could muster, he turned his dad over on his back and put his head above water to breathe, revealing the wide-eyed, expressionless look on his dad's face, with still panic somehow frozen in his eyes. He was completely unresponsive. Just then, a forceful wave pulled his dad out of John's arms, and he lost him again. Flabbergasted, John flagged his friend Matt, and the two frantically searched the ocean water for Jack, knowing time was against them. They had to find him before the next wave hit. His life was in their hands. Then they saw him. Just as another wave struck, each of them managed to grab Jack under an arm and drag him to shore, where they were joined by two good Samaritans and a lifeguard. What they didn't know at the time was that when Jack had taken the last wave with his son, he had ridden the wave headfirst into a sandbar breaking his neck at a C2 level, just underneath his head. And since the break happened well above the diaphragm in his body, he instantly lost the ability to breathe on his own, let alone move at all. No longer capable of using his arms or legs, Jack suddenly found himself at the helpless mercy of the ocean waves, tossing him to and fro. The last thing he saw was the swirling of green seawater all around him. Then everything went black. Minutes later, the two teenage boys managed to pull him onto shore to the lifeguards, and Matt sprinted across the sand to alert Joanne, who ran to the crowd to find the horrifying scene. I had many people come up to me during that time. I, of course, was on my knees because I didn't have the strength to stand, and they said, we're praying for you, we're praying for you. They were all very, very gracious and kind. Even as Joanne watched her motionless husband under the care of young lifeguards trying to get a heartbeat, random strangers approached from all sides, offering words of kindness and love for a woman they had never met. This horrifying scene, watching lifeguards pound on her husband's chest and trying to get him to breathe, lasted for what felt like an eternity. Not just because time seems to stand still during these moments, but because it was actually a really long time. Back before cell phones made calling 911 easy, the lifeguards had to do CPR on Jack for more than 20 minutes before the paramedics arrived. And when they did arrive, 
They took over the lifeguard's rotation and pulled out a defibrillator to try to jumpstart his heart. Joanne watched helplessly as they counted down multiple times, shocking Jack's chest in hopes that it would make a difference. And finally, it did. After all that time, they got a heartbeat. And then they put the air tubes down his throat so that he could breathe. The paramedics loaded Jack into the ambulance with Joanne by his side, and they drove to the nearest emergency room. Back on the beach, concerned strangers helped John and Matt gather the family's things and the two daughters who still didn't know what was going on and helped them carry everything to Matt's father's car when he was able to arrive at the beach. To this day, Joanne doesn't know who those helpful strangers were, but she is grateful they came to the aid of her family during a time of need. About a half hour after arriving at the emergency room and probably around two hours or so after the initial accident, Doctors and nurses surrounded Jack's bed, assessing his injuries. Suddenly, Jack's eyes opened. He was awake, but he couldn't move or make a sound. A member of the medical team saw his eyes open and said, Mr. Rushton, you've been in an accident. We want to know if you understand us. And if you do, blink your eyes once. Jack blinked once, indistinguishably. That was the first sign that although Jack's body was in a rough spot, he miraculously hadn't suffered any brain damage due to a lack of oxygen, something for which Joanne credits those young lifeguards who took turns doing CPR until the paramedics arrived on the scene. Soon, Jack was transported to the Mission Viejo Trauma Center just as people in his church community began learning of the accident. When I heard about Jack's accident, it was very hard for me to absorb it. It just, it just wouldn't go in. It wouldn't compute. I did not believe that something like that could happen to Jack. That's Jack's friend Norm recalling the day of the accident a few years back. Mom called hysterical and my husband answered the phone and screamed something out about my dad. She was, still wasn't sure what was going on with him. And I remember my husband just looking at me and wouldn't even tell me. That's Jolene, Jack and Joanne's oldest daughter. As word got around, the community was devastated. And for hours, friends, neighbors, and fellow church clergy who had all been touched by Jack and Joanne's constant service showed up at the hospital to show support and love to Jack and Joanne. Finally, around midnight, the doctors had to kick everyone out. The doctors said, you really, really need to go home. We're going to do extensive tests on him to see exactly where he might be. There's internal bleeding or whatever, you know. And it really won't do you any good to stay here. So Joanne heeded the doctor's advice and allowed a friend to drive her home to be with her two younger girls, where her parents had come to stay with the children. After a few hours, in the middle of the night, her phone rang. She quickly answered it. It was the doctor. The doctor gave me the news that Jack was paralyzed from the neck down and would not be able to breathe on his own again. And uh, it just seemed more than one could comprehend at that particular time. Jack, her husband of more than 25 years, the father of her six children and teacher to so many others, was paralyzed from the neck down. Joanne knew this was a defining moment for their family, whether they wanted it or not. Perhaps the most difficult thing about the whole situation was the one person you'd want to be with you or to take charge in a situation like this would be Jack. But he was the person who was injured. 
That's Richard, another friend. You always wonder why bad things happen to, to great people. Uh, sometimes you wonder whether it's because great people can handle it. One thing was sure. These great people were definitely being put to the test. Joanne remembers being by Jack's bedside and seeing Jack's big, bright eyes looking up at her that seemed to see everything. Things like, oh, my sweet Joanne, how did this happen? What will become of us? And she just rubbed his head and told him how much she loved him and that things would be all right. Joanne was a strong woman. Having grown up as the third oldest in a family of nine children and as being the first girl in the family, Joanne took up a lot of family responsibilities at a young age, demonstrating her natural ability to not only get things done, but to get them done right, even if they were hard to do. Her kids knew her as someone who had no trouble taking charge and making things happen. And now, here she was, faced with a trial no one asks for. She wept many times, held loved ones near, and stroked the face of her dear husband. She knew life was going to be different. Even though she already juggled a world of responsibilities, she knew that having a husband with quadriplegia was going to ask even more of her than she had ever been asked before. But she was up to the task, whatever it may be. Out there on the sand, watching her husband unable to breathe, she had pleaded a prayer to let him live. She didn't care how. So if this was how, she would accept it. It didn't occur to me at that point that he might even die. I don't know why it didn't. It wouldn't have occurred to me either, to be honest. Once Jack was breathing and stabilized and under the care of medical professionals, Joanne, like I would be, was facing the new reality of living with a husband who was paralyzed, a reality that would clearly consist of medical visits, wheelchairs, new transportation, constant assistance, and many, many other adjustments. But what she hadn't considered at the time, and what I never would have realized before talking to Joanne about it, which shows how little I understand these kinds of circumstances, Every day of his life would depend on the functionality of a breathing machine, a ventilator, or a respirator. Well, I mean, how many machines do you know of that function perfectly until the end of time? I think my husband's computer legitimately crashes at least eight times a day. And I mean, of course, a respirator would be designed to function better than that, but it would technically only take one small malfunction for Jack's life to instantly be in danger, especially if no one was around to notice the issue. And apparently, this is how a lot of people with injuries like Jack's die. Some pass away from infections or even suicide or other incidents, but others just die because the respirator breaks down when no one is around to be able to fix it. Which would be a terrifying thought. And the morning after Jack's accident, when Joanne went back to the hospital, it was the neurosurgeon who brought Joanne to this realization. He told us that he had had a patient that had lived for a year before on a respirator with a broken neck. And we didn't want to believe him. Only a year? That couldn't be the case. So he brought in another doctor that re said the same thing. And uh, it was just more than any of us could comprehend. And it wasn't just ventilator failure they had to worry about. Number one, you can get infections, you get pneumonia, you get terrible pressure sores that can go septic, you know, so many things. Jack had survived, yes, but now it would fall on the people around him to make sure he stayed alive. 
And as you might imagine, the thought was really scary for Jack. While he was now in the hospital, Joanne was there as much as possible, arriving in the morning and staying until late, while friends and family members watched over her kids. But at night, she had to go home to the children. Jack did not want to be left alone in the hospital because he couldn't cry for help. Jack couldn't speak at all. So if something went wrong, he had no movement, no hand movement. He couldn't alert a nurse that he needed any help. So his church community stepped in. For the two weeks he was in that hospital, friends from church took shifts around the clock to make sure he never had to be left alone. The tender visits brought Joanne and Jack a tremendous amount of comfort, knowing someone was always there watching over him. So every day for those two weeks, I would sit at the hospital all day long. I would read him cards and letters that people had sent. And... uh, That seemed to bring him a lot of comfort. One of their friends, Ron, was a professional artist, and he designed a communication chart with various objects on it that they could point to that might be something he would want them to talk to him about. Through his blinking, he was able to tell us what he would like. And so that helped a great deal to communicate with him. It was very helpful. We left him at the hospital after we left because they were so excited about it and able to communicate with other people that might have the same problem. After two weeks, Jack was transferred to a rehabilitation hospital where he would live for six months as he basically learned to live. And life at rehab was filled with ups and downs. Jack was released from his service position as stake president in his church, which brought him sorrow, but also understanding and eventually peace. And he focused on things like learning to control an electric wheelchair by sipping and puffing air into a tube, while Joanne learned what would be needed to care for him. Jack's adjustment was good. That's Bill, one of the nurses at Jack's rehabilitation hospital. His family support was absolutely magnificent. Joanne was always there. Doctors had originally told Joanne that Jack would never be able to do anything on his own again including ever being able to speak. And it would be better to put him in an institution. And of course, there was no way that was going to happen. Not on Joanne's watch. She had six kids with this man. When all this was over, he was going to go back home where he belonged. The worst of it was just, am I capable of caring for him at home by myself? Full quadriplegic on a respirator. How do I meet all of his needs at home? So they gave me some training in a hospital, showing me different things that I had to do. And the thought of not hearing Jack ever speak again was particularly difficult to fathom. Jack's brother Kim put it this way. The thing that upset me the most, more than anything else, is the fact I might never hear my brother's voice again. I don't know why that upset me so badly. The, the idea that he couldn't move or that he was paralyzed, it was almost like I didn't think of that. What I really thought of was I'm never going to hear his voice again. And he had recently called me on the phone and left a message and I'd erased it. And I'd, I was just kicking myself for that. After all, Jack had made a living by using his voice. He had found incredible joy in teaching and giving talks and counseling others. So the thought was just unbearable for everyone. But thankfully, there was a glimmer of hope. 
As everyone was reeling over the thought of never hearing Jack talk again, Joanne and her family were scouring Southern California for the right rehabilitation center for Jack once he was released from the trauma center. And as they searched, they met someone who totally changed their perspective. It was another patient in rehab who also had quadriplegia. And contrary to the expectations given to Joanne by three different and very certain neurosurgeons, this man could talk. He was even doing John Wayne imitations for us. And he filled us with so much hope. The patient had what is called a cuffless trach, or a tube inserted into his neck with an open cuff that allowed the recipient to speak on each exhale. It was the first time Joanne even knew speaking would ever be possible for Jack. And the doctors and nurses at Rancho Los Amigos Rehabilitation Center only confirmed Joanne's hopes. They told her that neurosurgeons are good at a lot of things, but they don't really understand what happens when a patient leaves their care. They plan to have Jack both speaking and eating again in no time. About two weeks after the accident, Jack was released from the hospital and moved to the rehabilitation center. And with the assistance of a doctor there who used a balloon to manipulate airflow past his vocal cords, he showed Jack and Joanne that talking was indeed in his future. That would enable him to say one or two words at a time. And so we were finally able to communicate with him again. And that was wonderful. Family friend Richard remembered the first time Jack could speak. His first words to the doctor was that he wanted some tortillas and frijoles. Uh, he wanted to be able to eat. I can remember the look on Joanne's face when she heard his voice. And at that point, I had just a confirmation that, that he was going to be a great inspiration to many people because being able to speak, he is a very humorous person, but he uses humor in a way that, that teaches us. One or two words was obviously nothing near the hours of talking he was able to do previously in front of the classroom or in front of a church congregation, but when compared with zero words and nothing but eye blinking, one or two words was amazing. And about a month after his accident, when his body was strong enough, Jack got his own cuffless trach, like the John Wayne impersonator, allowing Jack to speak a string of words on each exhale, a tremendous blessing that had originally been thought to be completely impossible. Sure, he had to pause with each inhale, but again, given previous circumstances, this was amazing. But there was more in store for Jack. It turns out, around the same time, there was this brilliant engineer with his own disease that made talking difficult, and he had worked with a doctor to invent something called a Passy-Muir valve, a valve that attaches to the tracheostomy tube and redirects respirator air through the vocal cords, mouth, and nose, giving a person the ability to speak on both the inhale and the exhale. So excitedly, Jack got his own Passy-Muir valve. But it wasn't what he had expected. In fact, it was particularly difficult to deal with. Jack said it was like a whirlwind going through his head. There was just so much air pressure that he couldn't take it. And the doctor said, well, you've just got to get used to it. In fact, actor Christopher Reeve, known to many as the original Superman, who was also paralyzed from the neck down after being thrown off a horse, had apparently tried the Passy-Muir valve and didn't like the way it made him feel, so he actually opted to use other communication methods. But talking was something that Jack just did not want to live without. So with determination and Joanne's incredible support, 
little by little, Jack used the valve for five minutes a day and then 10 minutes a day and so forth, increasing the amount of time he used it more and more. And after six months of practice, he was able to handle it. And most importantly, he had been given a gift so many of us take for granted. He could talk again. So it opened up a whole beautiful world to him to just be able to speak normal. And as Jack spent time in rehabilitation, Joanne juggled learning how to care for him with plans for future living adjustments. They had lived in this two-story house with no downstairs bedrooms for years. And while it pained her to move away from the community that was still reaching out on a daily basis, she knew they would have to move. They needed to live in a home that could accommodate Jack's wheelchair. But then she was approached by two men from their church congregation and community, Paul and Gary, both neighbors who also happened to work in construction. They approached me and they said, we want to build an addition onto your home so Jack can come home. And I said, oh no, we would never expect that. We'll, we'll just find a home that's suitable for us. And they said, no, we don't want you to move. Christmas time was coming. And it had always been an annual tradition for Jack's church congregation to get together during December to celebrate Christmas at what is known as a fireside. And no actual fire is involved. Fireside is more of a nickname in an LDS community for a special evening church service, where in this case, members got together to sing Christmas songs, hear talks, and remember basically the joy of the season. But this year, instead of holding the fireside at the church, the congregation brought it to Jack. Members of his church community all gathered at the rehab center's reception room to celebrate Christmas with Jack and Joanne. And at that fireside, they presented Jack and I with the plans for an addition onto our home. And it was paid for usually through donations of materials that companies like cement or wood, lumber, whatever was needed. Joanne hadn't told Jack about Gary and Paul's plans, so it was a surprise. And as you can imagine, Jack was beyond touched by the incredibly kind gesture. He had never received such a beautiful and incredibly unique Christmas gift. A gift that would allow him to continue to live in the community he loved. It was just an exhilarating feeling to know that people cared about us enough to go through this much effort was most touching. And that community got to work. Once Gary got the plans approved, they set a date and everybody showed up in our backyard. It was such a great project and there was such a a feeling about what we were doing. That's Gary during an interview a few years back. It was men, women, teenagers, kids, Anyone willing to hold a hammer or even willing to bring food or water for the people holding the hammers as they worked from early in the morning to late into the night, skipping meals to build Jack's new rooms as quickly as possible. Friends who were plumbers came and configured the plumbing. Friends who were electricians made sure the house was wired safely. There just seemed to be somebody that could do something that needed to be done late tile, granite, whatever it was. And in just six weeks, they had added a custom 750 feet to the back of Jack and Joanne's house. It included a wonderful bedroom for Jack, everything he would need, shelves to hold all of his equipment. And then it included a beautiful office where 
he could go. And the community had covered all the costs. We didn't pay anything out of pocket. And eventually, a few weeks after Christmas, it was nearing the time when Jack would be going home for the first time since he left it that summer, which meant that Joanne would suddenly be taking up the mantle of primary caregiver, something that made her incredibly nervous. You have to learn how to meet their bathroom needs. You know, you've got to dress them. You've got to do range of motion so their body doesn't get withered and drawn up in knots. I've actually seen the checklist for getting Jack ready in the mornings, and it is literally 56 steps that I imagine would probably take a couple hours to accomplish every morning. I mean, it listed everything from putting eye drops into Jack's eyes to bathing instructions to when to unplug which battery chargers and and how and when to use a lift device to lift Jack from his bed into his wheelchair and, and a lot more. I can see how Joanne, looking at this list, might have felt intimidated. And of course, if anything goes wrong, it's up to the caregiver to make it right. I mean, you think of someone being on a respirator and machinery stops or anything happen and they're gone. It's just that easy. But he was my responsibility. So that was very overwhelming as all these needs, physical needs of his had to be met. I mean, I didn't think I could do it. I remember going to the restroom one time after seeing a certain procedure that I would have to learn to do. I can just remember praying to Heavenly Father and saying, Heavenly Father, you didn't heal Jack, but you saved him, but you have got to help me so that I have the strength and the energy and the wisdom to be able to take care of his needs at home. And that was my prayer. I know that the Lord answered that prayer because what I once thought would be a very, very, very difficult thing to do, actually as the months went by, just became a way of life for us. And then the day arrived. January 31st, 1990, a Wednesday, the day Jack would finally be going home. When we left, I can remember the doctor saying, well, Jack, there's only about a thousand things that can go wrong with you. We'll probably see you soon. Some parting words of comfort, no doubt. (laughs) But Jack and Joanne couldn't be soured. That was such an exciting day. We had to borrow a van to bring him home in. And I hadn't told Jack, but I knew there would be quite a gathering of people to cheer him on. And so when that van turned down our street, people were cheering and yelling and the drums were playing and it was such a fun time. And if you're able to watch this podcast episode on Facebook or YouTube, you can see pictures of this day along with other pictures from the story. Gary, the contractor, said that it was... A memorable day for all of us. A a much-anticipated day. The street was literally lined with people. I'm guessing there was 150, 200 people who were here. Neighbors, children, and church friends lining the streets with banners, balloons, posters, and music. I mean, it was basically a street fair set up to welcome Jack home, even though it was the middle of a weekday. 
And as Joanne and Jack turned their van onto the street and Jack saw the scene in front of him, Jack's eyes filled with tears. There was a newspaper reporter there taking pictures and the house was all finished. Of course, Jack hadn't seen that. And Gary Anderson and Paul Colby and many others that had worked on the house were there. And they had to wheel him along the side of the home because that was going to be his new entrance. They had poured cement, and they brought him through this back door that they had hung. And on that back door, it said, this is the house that Jack's friends built. And it had everybody's signature written on that door. So that was very special. And then I remember Gary wheeling him into the home and showing Jack the new addition and what they had done. And kids were peering through the window and everybody was very happy and cheering. It was a very, very special time. And that's when their new life really began. Jack could now live on the main floor with easy access to the kitchen and the family rooms while the kids continued to sleep upstairs. Most importantly to them, the family was back together. And even after Jack settled in, after the house was built and the new routines were established, the community didn't forget about him. For instance, dressing him in the morning was a two-person job, so friends or neighbors often came over to lend a hand, which Joanne described as being sweet experiences. Additionally, Jack had a history professor friend who traveled the world taking pictures every summer. And each time he returned home, he would visit Jack and show him all the slides from his travels, taking Jack on these virtual trips around the world. A young woman friend who worked as a manicurist came over about once a month and did his finger and toenails. And other friends who had big dreams of seeing him be able to walk again came and gave him leg massages and rubbed special oils on his legs. Jack's bishop, the leader of his local church congregation, visited Jack on a regular basis just to see how he was doing. I don't think he missed a week that he didn't come and visit Jack. And family and friends checked in or visited regularly. Their home was one filled with love. But there were hard times, too. While Jack was an optimist, there were days, especially in the first year after his accident, where it was painful coming to terms with this new reality. He couldn't play the piano anymore. He couldn't go for a run as he often used to do, let alone play any of the sports he used to enjoy. He couldn't bend down and pick up his four-year-old. There were a lot of simple things in life he just, well, missed. Who wouldn't? I can't even conceive of what it must have been like to lose all your motor faculties and be stuck with lying in a bed and not being able to move. That's family friend Norm again. Jack is an athlete. It's like, uh, I I don't know what it's like, but just not to be able to go out on the court anymore, uh, to see the guys that you used to play ball with, and then you just can't do it. He must have suffered uh, very, very many lonely and uh, difficult times. And when times were especially tough for Jack, As you can imagine, it was also hard on Joanne. She truly saw him as a whole person. But when he was at home during these hard days, it was like he didn't see himself that way. He lacked the ability to see himself beyond his paralysis. In fact, 
I think I am unqualified to describe what he must have been feeling in those moments. I'd rather you hear it from Jack himself. It just seemed that I had lost so much. The use of my physical body, my career, my ability to serve in the church. And how could I ever be an effective husband and father in this kind of a physical condition? I wasn't angry at God. Uh, I was not uh, bitter. That's not the point. I wasn't going around saying, why me or poor me? I was just simply heartbroken and devastated. I, I just didn't know how I could live a very long life this way. And I had little hope for the future and really no joy in the present. And he sort of shut down, which was painful for Joanne. At home, he became really quiet, as though his physical paralysis had also taken over his emotions. Joanne wanted the husband she knew he was, He seemed able to talk to everyone else, but for reasons only Jack could really feel, he was having trouble opening up to the dearest person in his life. We were even having a hard time communicating, and I finally said to him, I might as well go get someone off the street to come and care for you, and I go out and get a full-time job because you seem to talk to them more than you talk to me. And uh, anyway, I guess he thought about that for a while. And we went on a car drive one morning, and he said, I've been thinking about a lot of what you've said. He told Joanne that he had prayed for God to basically put a mirror in front of him so he could see how he was really responding to this new life and to see himself as the Lord saw him. And when he did that, he suddenly had impressions come to mind, impressions that he was not meant to die anytime soon, but to live a productive life. And then ideas of things he could do to be a good husband and father, even in these circumstances, came to mind. He said, I realize that I need to change. And in praying for that, the Lord gave me a new heart. And he says, I, I really do want to live. And I think the Lord has really blessed me with the ability to want to go on and live. And uh, I'll never forget that. The greatest blessing that came from that experience is that the Lord saw fit to heal my spirit, to give me a new heart, as only He has the power to do. And I began to feel then a joy, a peace, a sense of well-being that I never thought I would ever feel again. And from then on, Jack really started to embrace his new reality with newly found hope and joy, and his sense of humor was back with a vengeance. 
And while some people out in public didn't always know how to react to Jack's physical condition, causing an awkward moment here or there, Jack and Joanne never really let it get to them. I worry a little bit about how I'm going to be perceived by others when, uh, especially when I go out in public. That's Jack telling a story in his own words in front of a captive audience, which we'll talk more about in a bit. The people that were the greatest were little children. Uh, we'd be at the beach and a mother would stand by and her children would come forward and they'd look at Jack and say, we're so happy that you could come to the beach today. Five-year-olds are the greatest. They are so open. I guess we could all learn a big lesson from little children about how to react to people that have a little bit of a physical problem. But they surrounded me and they were saying, hey, mister, what happened to you? What's that, what's that hose hanging out of your neck? And uh, how does this chair work? And uh, what is this all about? And there, were, there was this little kid that was kind of hanging around the, the edge. And I knew that he wanted to ask me something. And he just couldn't quite get his courage up. And finally, he got up real close to me. And, and uh, he looked me right in the eyes. And he said, hey, mister, what happened to your face? <laughs> I thought my face, I thought it was the only part of me that even halfway worked. And uh, I tried to run over the kid. As you can see, there's Jack's sense of humor in action. And from early on, Jack and Joanne were determined to live a fulfilling life. They weren't going to let a little old broken C2 vertebrae keep them trapped within the walls of their own home. We did everything. We went to the movies. We went out to dinner. We had family parties that we would go to. We took trips to Arizona and Utah, St. George, Vegas, places that weren't so far away that I couldn't drive. And uh, so we did. We got out an awful lot. Each day, we'd probably just go on an outing just to go through Taco Bell or just do something just to get out of the house for a short time. So we, we tried to have a very active life. They had a special van that Jack could drive his wheelchair into and then clip easily into a secured position where the passenger seat would normally have been so that he and his wife could ride in the car together side by side. That didn't mean he didn't fear for his life at times on the road, which had nothing to do with his quadriplegia. He actually said that the reason he had to get a pacemaker is because every time I changed lanes, it was a heart-stopping experience. Joanne, ever the woman on a mission, also drove that way. One time, their van broke down hours away from home, and since it's difficult for a person with quadriplegia to spend the night in an impromptu hotel room, and hailing a taxi or renting a car wouldn't really accommodate his wheelchair, Jack and Joanne had to ride the rest of the way home inside their broken van as it was carried on top of a tow truck bed. Some would call that unsafe, but... Jack said that's the best ride he ever had because I wasn't (laughs) driving. (laughs) As I was getting into the van, 
this one day, my ring finger on my left hand got caught on that seat. And as I was going in, it was bent all the way back to my wrist. And as I watched it, I said to myself, boy, I'll bet that hurts. <laughs> And sure enough, it, it got all black and blue and it got all swollen up and so Joanne says, we got to go to the doctor and we went to the doctor and they took an x-ray and we're sitting in one of those little rooms they stick you in and the doctor came in with the x-rays in his hand and he didn't really look at me that, that closely and he said, well, Mr. Rushton, you got a fractured finger and we're going to have to immobilize that finger. <laughs> And uh, I thought, my golly, where did you go to medical school? <laughs> Jack and Joanne's sense of humor came in handy on a number of occasions. Like the time the family came home from church and went inside the house, forgetting to unlock the side gate so that Jack could roll his wheelchair into the house from the back. 30 minutes or so went by with Joanne and the girls chatting as family members do until a neighbor walked up the porch steps and knocked on the front door to let them know that Jack had just been hanging out on the driveway for a half hour. <laughs> sure enough, they went outside to see Jack playfully smirking at them, waiting patiently to be remembered. And I gotta say, I love that story. And not because it shows that like Jack was forgettable or something because he clearly was not, <laughs> quite the contrary. I love that story because it shows the level of normalcy their family reached. They were back to being a normal and normally human family. Even though my health is very good, Joanne still insists on taking me to the doctor every once in a while for a checkup. And so we go and, and they do blood work and uh, the nurse gets the needle ready to take my blood and uh, I always ask her, is this going to hurt? <laughs> she pats me on the arm and, and uh, says, well, it'll probably sting just a little bit. Though there were definitely challenges they experienced that were unique to their circumstances. For one, dreaded ventilator failures. That happened to us on numerous occasions. The first time happened only a couple months or so after first bringing Jack home from rehabilitation. I was dusting in the house and I heard this funny alarm and I thought that it was coming from outside. So I can remember going from the family room clear outside my backyard looking for this alarm. And it was actually Jack in his bedroom that the respirator had malfunctioned and had set off this terrible noise. And uh, one thing that someone in Jack's situation does is they kind of click with their tongue to try to get your attention going, <coughs> meaning I need your help. And by the time I realized it was him and got to him, he had blacked out. And I just couldn't get the respirator working fast enough, I thought, to bring him back. And I did. And I just remember falling to the bed and just being completely wiped out, you know, that that could have been the moment 
But that was just one of many. On another occasion, Jack was working in his office while Joanne and some family members worked in the kitchen just a room away. We had acquired this cute little Taco Bell dog. A.K.A. a chihuahua. He was just darling. When suddenly the little dog came running into the kitchen, barking furiously at Joanne. And then he would run toward the back door. And I thought, what on earth? And then if I didn't come, he'd come back and get me. So I finally followed him, and he took me right to Jack. And his hose had become disconnected, and Jack was doing the tongue thing. And that little dog knew, so talk about intuition, that little dog knew that Jack was in danger. And the respirator alarm didn't go off. Usually that's our clue. We can hear the respirator alarm, but it didn't go off that day. And those were just two instances where the ventilator had problems. Joanne said it happened a couple times a year. So they tried to always stay within earshot of Jack in order to hear a potential alarm or his tongue clicks. And it worked. For years, each time the respirator gave out, Joanne was able to come to the rescue. And it wasn't just the ventilator they had to deal with. Other health scares were thrown in for good measure, like the time Jack almost bled to death when it turned out the medication he had been taking had apparently been eating away at his arteries. Normally, a person might be alerted to these kinds of issues because they were in a great amount of pain or something. But pain is a luxury someone with paralysis just doesn't have. You know, with all of the modern technology that we have in the world, it's just amazing that... uh My life support system is held together by Velcro and two rubber bands. (laughs) I call this living on the edge. And he truly was. He was living on the edge. My son John was 16 at the time, and he he drew the duty to sleep in there with me that particular night to uh, give his mother a little break. And... In, the, in the, the middle of the night, I could sense that uh, I wasn't breathing real good. And uh, all of a sudden, I could hardly breathe at all. And the alarms began sounding on the respirator. And I looked across the room at John, and he didn't budge. And I thought, oh, no, I'm a goner. This kid's never going to wake up. But all of a sudden, he jumped out of bed, ran over to the telephone, picked it up, and said, hello. (laughs) And that's why I call it living on the edge. Months after first finishing rehabilitation and returning home to his new life, Jack was asked to be a part of something that didn't seem particularly life-altering at the time. But as small and simple events often do, it would end up pointing his life down a unique and distinct direction, onto a path that would influence the lives of thousands for years to come. One day, a friend approached him and asked him to speak at a seminary graduation ceremony where high school seniors graduate from four years of their religious classes. And Jack said... I can't do that. I'm no good at that. He was on a respirator. He couldn't turn his head to look around a room or even lift his arms to emphasize a point. 
Sure, I mean, he used to speak all the time, but those days were over. He couldn't even stand in front of an audience now. How was he supposed to talk to them? His mind was immediately made up, no, (laughs) this was something he was not going to be able to do. But his friend, who had known Jack for years, just wouldn't hear of it. He says, I'm putting your name on the program. You better show up. Upon realizing that his friend was dead serious and that his name was already being circulated as being the graduation speaker, Jack didn't know what else to do. He roped in Joanne for help, and the two of them put together some words to say. Graduation day came, and Jack's friend smiled as Jack rolled in the door, terribly nervous, but ready to speak. He went there and gave a wonderful talk. Jack was a different kind of speaker, one the seminary students were not used to. He was in a wheelchair, not even able to move his head from side to side, and he spoke with a unique rhythm perpetuated by his speaking valve and the respirator, 12 breaths per minute to be exact. They had never heard someone speak like this before. But well beyond the uniqueness of his speaking style, there was no denying the profound wisdom they heard in his words. Just as Joanne had been impressed by his ability to touch the soul with his speaking back when she first saw him talk in college, these students were deeply drawn to his insights. Yes, one's body might be paralyzed, or one might be cast into prison or whatever the circumstances of life may be. But we have the ultimate God-given freedom to choose our own attitude each day. And we can choose to be happy and make those about us happy. Or we can choose to be miserable and ornery and affect others in that way. His voice may have sounded different. He may have looked different. But when he spoke to an audience, one thing was clear. Jack was back. And to Jack's surprise, that talk was only the beginning. And then after that, invitations just came. And we would just accept them. Word traveled fast about the inspirational speaker living in Southern California. Suddenly, Jack and Joanne received calls requesting his insights at other events, community events, school events, church events from all different denominations. Everyone wanted to learn from the man with quadriplegia. And as long as the distance to speak was drivable, they went. In all of our lives, sooner or later, there may come circumstances very unexpectedly, oftentimes unwanted and not of our choosing. And when they come, we have got to be able to accept those circumstances, those things about them, over which we have no control and cannot change. But in doing so, never fall into the trap of letting our circumstances control our behavior, limit our behavior and keep us from fulfilling our true potential as sons and daughters of God. Seeing themselves as the recipients of great service so many times, Jack and Joanne rarely accepted any speaking fees at all. In fact, they usually paid for their own travel expenses to do these speaking engagements. But they were happy to do it because they saw these chances to speak as opportunities to sort of lift others, which was something that brought them great joy. They would have all these speaking engagements 
and that was nearly almost every weekend that we would go. With Joanne driving and Jack praying, they'd arrive safely. Young people, ages usually 12 up through 18, they loved hearing from him, and they would line up afterwards and thank him for coming and how he helped them through a rough time in their life. In all of our lives, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. I know that to be true. All of us, before we get through this mortal existence, are going to suffer pain of some kind. The death of a loved one, a major sickness, something will happen that will bring with it its challenges. That goes without saying it is inevitable. But misery is optional. He always told many jokes, poking fun at himself usually, of things that would happen to him, especially while we were dressing him or something. But he would always have everybody laughing in the beginning, and they couldn't believe it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the stage, the get-you-up, sit-down comedy of Mr. Jack Rushton. I wanted to be able to do one thing better than anybody else and was very unsuccessful. And then I had my accident and I thought, you know, maybe I can be the best quadriplegic on a respirator that ever lived. <laughs> And then, wouldn't you know it, Christopher Reeve goes out and breaks his neck. And I'm in competition with Superman. And then he would get serious, and he would talk about other people that had struggles and how they overcame it and then about himself, the experiences he would have, and the adjustments that he had made. And he always ended up with the theme that it was good to be alive, that no matter what situation he was in, he was glad to be alive. And so it is. It is good to be alive. It's not good to be paralyzed, but it's good to be able to still be with my family, to have seen the birth of eight more grandchildren, to see my children doing the things that they're doing with their lives, to be able to be just near Joanne. He had a great laugh still. He really did and a very pleasant big smile. I was in the hospital uh, recuperating, and I remember this one day I was lying there very comfortably, and uh, all of a sudden Joanne appeared at my bedside with a can of shaving cream in one hand, big smile on her face and a double-edged razor in the other. 
my whole life passed in front of my eyes. It was a far more harrowing experience than my accident. And I soon convinced her to get an electric razor, which she did, and uh, along with it, she got an electric toothbrush, which I have learned can be a lethal weapon. Yeah. Especially when she's watching a TV show and <laughs> brushing my teeth at the same time. He always had everybody laughing. And I think that's what helped him the most, was being able to teach and speak. Because when he did those things, I think he felt like a whole person. He wasn't paralyzed. He wasn't on a respirator. You know, he was just Jack up there, you know, sharing his thoughts that he had in a spiritual message. Jack didn't only speak his insights, but voice activation technology eventually really took off. So he was able to start writing on his computer as well. Jack was able to write and prepare lessons and do anything he wanted to do on that computer. He wrote two books and a lot of family histories, and he utilized his time every day, spending probably about six to seven hours every day on the computer. Jack wrote two books in particular, one about his experience on an LDS mission, and another book called It's Good to Be Alive, Observations from a Wheelchair, which I highly recommend. And for years, Jack and Joanne traveled the Western United States talking to audiences of all ages, sharing stories and perspectives unique to them, but applicable really to all of us. His talks were televised at times. He was interviewed on the radio. And yet he always looked forward to teaching the simple Sunday school class lessons that he taught every week to the very community who first welcomed him back with open arms. Over time, thousands upon thousands of people came to know and love Jack Rushton and Joanne, who was forever by his side. Where he had inspired a great number of people before that tragic day on the beach, his reach since that day had increased a hundredfold. Interesting how life works, isn't it? And beyond his great public influence, Jack was even greater where it mattered most. He was a wonderful counselor. We could always talk and discuss things and, you, you know, kids have issues. We could talk about that as a husband and wife. So that, that was always very special. And their kids absolutely loved their dad. And he inspired their lives in a number of ways. They were wonderful. John, the 16-year-old, he became an ER doctor. He loved helping his dad. Uh, we always joked that John said to his friends at night, I've got to go home and put my dad to bed. After pulling his father's body out of the ocean waves and helping his mother take care of him for years, it only felt natural to take on the career of saving other people in need. And he wasn't the only one in the family. Our daughter Rachel was nine at the time. And by the time she left for BYU, she was so capable in Jack's care and uh, just a wonderful help, and she became a nurse. And then little Jackie, who was five years behind her, she helped me a lot, just the same. But when they were little girls, they would feed their dad, they would turn the TV, they would just do whatever he would ask them to do. 
So they were just wonderful, wonderful little girls. Because of my situation, I cannot do one single thing for myself. And each day of my life, I experience almost hourly the love and the service of my friends and especially of my family. And in turn, I'm able to be of some value to them, to still be a companion to my wife, to be able to be a friend and a counselor to my children, to be able to visit with them, to counsel them, and to feel that they value that counsel. A few years after Jack's accident, Jack ran into a doctor who worked at the trauma center where Jack had been brought on the day of his accident the hospital that had originally first saved his life. And this doctor said that he overheard the doctors and nurses who had saved Jack talking about him one day. He said, After you left the hospital that night, and they had wondered if they had done you a favor by saving your life, you know, because of the difficulty and hardship that you will face now being paralyzed and on a respirator. Jack considered those words only for a moment. To him, the answer was clear. And I told the doctor, when you go to work tonight, would you take a message from me to your friends at the hospital? Please tell them that they did me the greatest favor that anybody can do for another human being and preserving my life. And please tell them this. It is good to be alive. And it really was. For Jack, for Joanne, and every person who was touched by him, those thousands of people who heard his words or felt of his example were happy he was alive. Jack lived for 23 years after his accident, to the age of 74, much longer than the life expectancy for a person relying on a respirator. Still, his passing came unexpectedly. It was Christmas Eve, 2012. He was perfectly healthy and fine, and it was late Christmas Eve, and my daughter and her husband were living with us with their three children, and we were just in this living room area, getting things ready for Christmas morning. And uh, we had had a wonderful little family Christmas time. And Jack had been put to bed. And at midnight, I went into his bedroom and I was talking to him. And he wasn't giving me any response of any kind. So I said, boy, you must really be tired. So I went over to him and realized that he was gone. Jack's respirator was still working, and its alarm had never gone off to indicate a malfunction. It was as though his time had simply come.
instead of being a terrible, sad day, we often said, you know, Jack's free. You know, he's lived a long life and done a lot of good, and he's been patient and industrious and done all he could in his situation. So people were happy and sad. It was just one of those things, you know. He had beat the odds, long outliving doctors who said he wouldn't survive longer than a year or two. I have no idea how the word spread, but our home was filled with people about one o'clock in the morning. Friends, neighbors, relatives, the same community who had stepped in on the day of Jack's accident 23 years prior, the same community who had built his home and welcomed him back with open arms and held on to him for all these years, that same community was there again in the middle of the night to support Joanne and say goodbye to a man who had inspired them all. And they stepped in to serve him once more. Gary Anderson that had spearheaded the addition onto our home approached me a few days later and said that he wanted to build Jack's casket. Gary recruited friends to help from the design to the construction, anything that needed to be done. Women from their church community gathered at a friend's home and worked together to place a beautiful fabric lining in the casket. In the end, many of Jack's same friends who had built the home for Jack's body when he was alive also built and beautified his body's resting place. They built this beautiful oak casket. And just as they had signed the door of Jack's new home years ago, everyone who helped with the casket wrote their names inside it before the lining was installed. So that was just a really, really going the extra mile, you know, to want to take on that kind of a job, that kind of a service. It just really showed their love for Jack and, and what they wanted to do for him. And uh, I was extremely, extremely touched by that. As you might expect, Jack's funeral was standing room only. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people were there to pay their respects. During those 23 years, he lived a very, very fulfilling life. And so did Joanne. All I can say is that being married to Jack and being able to serve him the way I did was an incredible experience for me. I never felt that Jack was a terrible burden. or I never felt like I can't do this another day. This is just impossible, you know. When he got hurt, we still had quite a young family at home, and we still raised those children. And it was wonderful still having him with us. Jack had been a great pianist, and when his daughters would take piano lessons and practice, he loved to listen to them play and sometimes would correct them if they needed correction. And he always gave them interviews and was there to talk to them whenever they needed to share something. We would take him to as many of their activities as 
we possibly could. So we just tried to stay close as a family. And it was so wonderful because when he got hurt, we had two three-month-old grandsons. But when he passed, we had 19 grandchildren. And he got to see many of them go on missions and return home. He got to go to the temple and see them married. So he got to see some beautiful things in life that he would have missed had he passed on. I asked Joanne what Jack's legacy in life was, if you could narrow it down to one thing. Oh, my goodness. Never give up, I think, is probably a good one. And he never, ever doubted his faith in God and ever said, why me? How come this had to happen? He just forged forward. He had those first few years that were years of big adjustment. But once he found what he was able to do and able to accomplish, it gave him a new mission and outlook on life. And he remained a wonderful husband. He was a great dad. And the grandchildren worshipped him. And uh, he was just a stalwart person. And uh, I just, we think he's amazing. Today, Joanne still lives in the home that she shared with Jack for 38 years. And she's facing a new difficult challenge. About three years ago, Joanne was diagnosed with the rare and incurable progressive neurodegenerative disease called ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's taken away her own ability to walk and will eventually take much more. Things are tough for me right now. And it's interesting because since the community came together to build extra rooms to accommodate Jack's wheelchair, now Joanne is able to access those rooms with her own wheelchair, allowing her to continue living in the home and the community that she loves. It's yet another blessing born out of service amidst another trial no one saw coming. I found it much easier to be a caregiver than the one being cared for. That's for sure. But if there's one thing we know for sure about Joanne, it's that she is one tough cookie. I'm just barely, barely getting a glimpse into what Jack must have endured, especially those beginning years, trying to accommodate to the loss of everything, you know, but his voice. And that's all he had. I mean, he couldn't even so much as turn his head. And I'm in a situation now with ALS that I'm in a wheelchair. I can no longer walk, but I can still move my arms and hands somewhat. But I am still struggling so badly. I thought, how on earth did he ever adjust to that? And yet we do see people. We got acquainted with the other side of the world, not just the able-bodied, but the disabled, you know, and uh, learned that there were many people out there in the world that struggle a great deal with handicaps and other issues, and uh, they end up being quite valiant, and you're very amazed how they carry on and are able to do what they do, just go on with life, you know? My accident was a wake-up call. 
Every day to me is a precious gift. Every day I value with all of my heart. Enjoy the moment. Joanne because she's my neighbor. I only needed to walk a few houses across the street to interview her about her story. I was able to walk home with binders filled with photos and letters and newspaper articles about Jack and his life. And as I read through them, I developed such a deep respect for him and his entire family, especially Joanne. I actually never knew Jack very well because I moved into the neighborhood after he had already passed away, but I did know of him quite well, and I got to meet him a couple times, and I also got to see him teach a couple times, and I'll just say the man was honestly just legendary. Just a funny, clever, humble human. The kind that probably goes straight to heaven and then hopefully saves us all seats. We believe that we can be together as families in the eternities, that after this life that we will be together. And one partner usually goes ahead before another or a child before a parent. But whatever the case, that if we live good lives and are good people, that we will be together forever. So I look forward a great deal to moving on and being with Jack. I. I'm not hoping to stick around for 23 more years. (laughs) There are so many lessons that we can learn from Jack and Joanne. What makes their story especially unique is how their examples can be catered to teach us what our souls need to learn, I guess you could say. Whether it's lessons of perseverance, service, gratitude, love, hope, optimism, faith. I mean, Jack left behind a timeless legacy for all of us. And if you want to know more about Jack's life and his writings, both of his books are available on Amazon. I'm going to plug them, even though Joanne didn't tell me to. (laughs) Just search for Jack Rushton. And additionally, as long as computers made it possible, Jack had written down these weekly observations from his wheelchair, as he called them, some of which went into his book. And these writings are actually available to read for free at observationsbyjack.blogspot.com. So if you're feeling down and maybe you need a little pick-me-up, that could be a good place to go. And also, if you want to reach out to Joanne or to any of the people interviewed on this podcast, you can always send me an email at jolie at podsitivitypodcast.com, and I'll make sure to forward any messages to Joanne or anyone else. And if you have a story of your own that would be a good fit for this podcast, please go to the Podsitivity Facebook page and fill out the form posted there. I really do believe that we could use more uplifting true stories in this crazy, busy world of ours, so I'm trying to do my little part to make that happen. And... As for the concluding podcast, yada yadas, uh, you can find Positivity on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, basically. 
If you want to contribute financially to the creation of these episodes, we do have a Patreon you can sign up for. And as I mentioned earlier, video versions of each episode can also be found on YouTube or Facebook, which makes them a little easier to share with friends if that's something you'd like to do. And with that, I really do hope your day is filled with awesomeness, inspiration, and hope. This is Positivity. I'm Jolie Hales. And always remember, you're worth more than you know. Oh,